Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you've already subscribed, tell a friend about us. Now here's the show. What is going to happen when these areas gone? I think time is running out. Breathing toxic air and bearing the brunt of an environmental disaster in Ohio and in Southern California. It's Wednesday, February 22nd, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, we take you to three corners of the country where people are grappling with the impact of environmental disasters. Some man-made and some natural, but turbocharged by climate change. A little later, Peter O'Dowd visits the abandoned Salton Riviera, a landscape in Southern California often described as post-apocalyptic. And Robin Young checks in on Florida's southern Gulf Coast, five months after Hurricane Ian. But we start in East Palestine, Ohio, where EPA Chief Michael Regan said yesterday he'd use the agency's full enforcement authority to make sure the company behind that toxic train derailment would handle and pay for all the necessary cleanup. Norfolk Southern will pay for cleaning up the mess that they created and the trauma that they inflicted on this community and impacted Beaver County residents. But there are still a lot of questions about what happens next. And this morning, Robin got a chance to put some of them to Ohio's Republican governor, Mike DeWine. Yes, this was village water on the village system. Uh, We had tested all five of the wells. And as soon as we got the results back, we told people uh, that it was clear to drink that water. Uh, We told them if they have their own individual well, though, they need to have that individual well tested. And Governor Dewan, you know that people are skeptical and worried. What do you say to people who are worried, yes, I'll test my well today, but won't it leach from the ground and the groundwater at some point, that, that vinyl chloride that was released by the train? You know, they've been traumatized. You know, a woman told me, uh, told Fran and me yesterday, you know, I don't, I'm afraid to let my kids go out and play outside in the grass. You know, is that grass safe? Is that dirt safe? So it's understandable that they're going to be very skeptical. Uh, they should be skeptical. You know, the, the main point I made yesterday to them uh, is that we're in this for the long run. We are not leaving. Um, one of the first things the mayor said to me is, you know, don't leave us. Uh, yeah. When 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 the uh, TV cameras go away, when the radio goes away, we're still going to have people with, with concerns. So that's why we're going to test that water every week. Uh, We're just going to continue to do it. The nature of this problem is that people are going to have long-term concerns. We set up yesterday a clinic. Uh, You know, some people don't have a primary care uh, physician. Some people don't have insurance. We want them to be able to walk in and talk to somebody who is an expert. If they've got uh, symptoms, uh, you know, let's, we're going to try to get them into you know, the medical system. Okay, so that I've heard you clearly, you are telling residents, don't just test it once, keep testing uh, your well water, because it might leach from the ground into the water. I'm wondering, your fellow governor in Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro, uh, sent a criminal referral to his AG to review. You've indicated you're also prepared to take legal action. Can you elaborate more? 
Well, I'm actually talking uh, today to uh, David Yost, who is our elected attorney general uh, of the state. And I'm sure that's one of the topics that, you know, he and I are going to discuss. I think in the long run, uh, there's going to have to be an assurance. There's going to have to be a fund set up uh, either through a court action, class action or some other way so that the people of the community can be assured that, you know, two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, uh, that there's money there. Uh, that will, will will take care of them if they, in fact, have, have well, a problem. Well, Governor, let's talk about that, because I'm sure you've heard the numbers. Norfolk Southern has set up a million-dollar fund for the Palestine community. They've given out, you know, a few million dollars to direct help. But we're learning that they gave over $4 billion to investors last year. This is when very flush companies have money like that in the billions of dollars, and they give it to investors in the form of stock buybacks. In this case, rather than investing in safety, and we know there are questions around the safety of that train, you know, that $1 million in the community fund is 0.02% of that four, over $4 billion given back. Your, your response to that? Well, look, everybody I think knows a million dollars is not going to do this. We're talking about multiple millions, and we don't even know yet you know, how much that's going to be. But that, that has to be taken care of to take care of the problem you know, that they created. Uh, when you talk about safety, we also, uh, you know, both Governor Shapiro and I have called for, uh, you know, more stringent safety in regard to our railroads. Uh, just to tell you how absurd the law is today, um, you know, if if a train, let's say a train is 100 cars, if if there's only 49 of those cars that are carrying toxic material, they know they do not have to notify us uh, mm. that they're coming through Ohio. And look, that you know, notify, notification won't stop the train from coming off the railroad track, but at least would have given our fire department uh, information about what was in that train that was going through the edge of, edge of the town. Well, I know you've uh, called on uh, Congress uh, to toughen up those disclosure rules. Will you ask your uh, senators, including your Republican Senator J.D. Vance, Republicans have been lobbied by the rail industry. Do you expect Senator Vance to stand with you on that? Well, I sure do. He, he gets it. I mean, look, this is not a partisan issue. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. Uh, trains going through your community, uh, my community, anybody's community, we have a right to, to know that uh, the, the, the modern safety measures are being used. Yeah. Uh, Well, it's not a partisan issue, but it might become one. As you well know, former President Trump is visiting East Palestine today. Do you want uh, President Biden to come? Well, the president called me yesterday. We had a long conversation. Uh, He called me from Poland. (laughs) The modern world, he saw me on TV uh, drinking some of the water, he said. But I think the president uh, would always be welcome. He's, any, any president is going to be welcome in Ohio uh, as long as I'm, I'm, I'm governor. And look, we all just have to be in this for the long haul. We, mm-hmm. We've only been able to remove, for example, about half of the dirt that needs to be removed. There's just a lot more work to do. And then we're still going to be left with people's fears and their concerns, and those have to be addressed. Mike DeWine, governor of Ohio, we wish you the best. Thanks so much, governor. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. Yesterday, we spoke with someone who's been tracking how freight rail lobbyists have helped delay and weaken safety measures in the industry. You can find that and all our coverage of East Palestine at hereandnow.org. 
On the other side of the country, another airborne toxic event has been happening in slow motion for years. We are the sacrifice zone, you know. We're predominantly Latino population, you know, predominantly of color, predominantly of low income. Uh, This is our story. That's coming up after the break. If seven western states don't drastically cut how much water they use, the Colorado River could stop flowing past the dam at Lake Mead. It's a disaster, threatening millions of people. But it's also a crisis for California's Salton Sea, a 340-square-mile lake formed in 1905 when a canal carrying river water to farmers in the Imperial Valley ruptured. The flood created a desert oasis, bringing tourists and migratory birds to its shore, But a century later, in the grip of a punishing drought, California's largest lake is spiraling into an ecological disaster. Peter O'Dowd reports on the race to save it. This is the sound of Bombay Beach at the Sultan Sea in Southern California. It is one of the strangest places I have ever been. Behind me, there's water as far as the eye can see, mountains in the distance. But here at my feet, yellow foam. It stinks bad. The beach is full of art installations. It's sort of apocalyptic. I call it a bohemian community. Frank Ruiz is my guide to this low spot on the map, 223 feet below sea level. Many of the trailer homes in town are rusting into the earth and tagged with graffiti. Here on the shore, a 20-foot wind chime clangs above us. A phone booth stands alone in the sand. I've seen pictures, you know, of the heydays, you know, this place and... um People from all over Southern California, luminaries from Hollywood. Uh, people used to come and, and enjoy the, the boating, fine dining, golfing, you name it. Uh, for many years, you know, this was, you know, the hottest place, you know, in Southern California that I was, that, that, that was even called the uh, California Riviera. Seen better days then, I guess you could say. Oh, uh, totally. Uh, at one point, it probably saw more visitors than even the Yosemite National Park itself. The Salton Sea's decline has been decades in the making. And to understand why, it helps to look at where the water comes from. The lake is fed almost entirely by leftover irrigation that drains off nearby farms. It's water from the Colorado River that grows the alfalfa and lettuce, onions and dates. A few years back, the local irrigation district agreed to send a large share of its water to San Diego, which meant a lot less for the Salton Sea. Plus, with a climate that's getting hotter and drier, it all adds up. The lake is shrinking fast. In in certain areas, the water has receded about 40, 50, 100 feet. And with the Colorado River crisis, the the Salton Sea is going to recede at an even much faster pace. It's a triple threat. Oh, totally. I mean, it's, this is going to be a nightmare. Ruiz works for Autobahn, California. He says that as the water level drops, the lake is getting saltier. The birds are leaving, the fish are suffocating, but the real nightmare is what's lurking in the dried up lake bed. Heavy metals like arsenic, uh, copper, selenium, and DDT, a toxic insecticide left over from generations of farming. When those particles dry up, I mean, just imagine what they can do to the communities. When the wind blows, those chemicals get whipped up off the lake bed and become a hazard for the people who live nearby. 
It's a problem the state of California is trying urgently to fix. About an hour's drive from Bombay Beach on the south side of the Salton Sea, an excavator claws at the earth. This construction project spans six and a half square miles of exposed shoreline. It's a vast field of open dirt. Crews have been building islands out of rock and digging deep ponds that will soon be filled with lake water to create new habitat for wildlife. Project manager Vivian Maisonneuve is leading me to the shore, where a mile-long causeway juts out into the lake. In a few months, a system of pumps will be ready to suck water deep from the Salton Sea and send it gushing over the dried-up lake bed. The birds have already noticed the changing landscape. We saw earlier some whitefish uh, ibis. We currently have some ducks. Maisonneuve peers through his binoculars. We have a stern, it looks like. A blue heron wades in a new canal that lines the perimeter of the project. Egrets, white as snow, stand on impossibly long legs. And then, hundreds of birds lift off the water and take flight. That was sort of impressive. <laughs> That's exactly what we're trying to recreate. As you look through your binoculars yes, there, and you see so all the, the wildlife in this area, and what all the empty dirt behind us could become. Like, does it kind of hit home Absolutely. what you're doing here? It, it definitely shows that we just have to, to do it for it, and then it will, they will come. Flooding the shoreline will also keep that toxic dust out of the air. Lisa Lean Mager with the state's Natural Resources Agency says it's progress long overdue. I would say this, this project is urgent in many ways. It's all part of California's 10-year plan to save the Salton Sea. Back in November, the federal government gave that effort a boost. It agreed to spend $250 million to help fix the growing environmental disaster. In exchange, local irrigation districts will give up several hundred thousand acre feet of Colorado River water over the next four years. It's a lot of water, which means that the lake's just going to get smaller in that time, right? So, I mean, can you keep up with the amount of shrinkage that's going to be happening here? Well, we think there is a point at which the sea eventually stabilizes. We're thinking into like 2048, there's a modeling and projections um, that show you would have a smaller sea confined to where the deepest parts are, and it would reach a sort of equilibrium. By the time that happens, the state predicts that 84 square miles of the Salton Sea will have vanished. That is bad medicine for the people who live nearby. Hola, buenas noches. Hola. Julieta del Castillo and her mom Nancy meet me outside their home in the lakeside community of Sultan City. This is no paradise. Most of the neighborhood lots are empty. Even the palm trees are dead. They look like broken fingers pointing at the sky. The smell is really bad. 18-year-old Julieta describes what it's like to live so close to the water. We walk around and we smell it and it affects our like breathing and everything. Mom, did I see you cross yourself there? <laughs> that... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it that bad? It is. It is. I take a shower and I go out and I came, and when I came back home, I smell fish, my hair, my clothes. <laughs> so it's, it's really ugly. And you were mentioning how it gives you trouble breathing. Yeah. Right now we have a monitor for the air and it's always red. It goes inside of the house, but it's always red. A study from the University of Southern California shows that up to 30% of the kids in this area have asthma, far above the state average. 
Julieta's hands crack with eczema, her brother gets nosebleeds, mom carries eye drops and inhalers. When she breathes, it's like... (laughs) Oh, wheezing. Yeah, wheezing. Do you think about what it means to have your kids and yourself, your family, living with that kind of air quality for a long time, over the years, like what it might mean? Yes, yes. In fact, we are thinking to move some other place. When I ask Nancy if she thinks the state's plans to save the lake will help? No, that's not going to work. That is not working. Luis Almedo agrees. It's not enough. A quarter billion dollars is a drop in the bucket. Almedo leads a community group called Comité Civico del Valle. He says for years, industry and government have failed to invest in the people who bear the burden of this toxic environment. We are the sacrifice zone, you know. We're predominantly Latino population, you know, predominantly of color, predominantly of low income. Uh, This is our story. He praises the state of California and the Biden administration for finally getting serious about the Salton Sea. But he wants to know, if the Imperial Valley gives up a big share of precious river water, what do the people get out of it? You know, in Spanish they say, you know, cuentas claras, amistades largas. You know, it says clear accounting, you know, builds long friendships. And at this point, we don't have any clear account of what's happening. All we see is you're taking more of our water, and then you gave me a few million dollars for it. How do you call that a fair negotiation? Like that's, you know, we're not ignorant. We know how to do math. This is a complex problem without a simple answer. How to account for an endless drought that is stealing the water and fouling the air. Back at Bombay Beach, Autobahn's Frank Ruiz is trudging through the kind of mud that sucks the boots off your feet. He wants to show me something his group is working on. It's a smaller wetland restoration project that'll cover another thousand acres of toxic shoreline with water. The Salmon Sea is the last standing jewel along the Pacific Flyway. That brings the connects birds, you know, from Alaska all the way down to South America. What is going to happen when this area is gone? I think time is running out. Crouched here between the grass and salt cedar, it's almost silent. In the distance, a bird is calling. Oh, that's a rail. A rail. This is full of life. And when you look at, you know, the, the birds, you know, that are still coming to the area, I get inspired by their resiliency. They know there are less, you know, uh, resources each and every time, you know, they come back. But yet they keep coming back. So I think, you know, we have a moral obligation to do something. I mean, now it is our duty to enhance habitats, you know, for the wildlife, you know, to perhaps not to thrive, but just to survive. At the start of this story, I said the Salton Sea was one of the strangest places I've ever been. Which is true, but it's only part of the story. Visit this spot in the California desert where the salt water laps against the shore, and you might find what I did. An accidental lake as beautiful as it is troubled. For Here and Now, I'm Peter O'Dowd. We've got one more story for you today from Florida where Robin Young finds the impact of Hurricane Ian is still severe five months later. Stick around.
Five months after Hurricane Ian detonated on Florida's southern Gulf Coast, killing 149 people, destroying whole communities, Bonita Beach Road in Fort Myers is a hive of activity. Or is it? Look closer. This road runs like a balance beam between the Gulf on one side and Estero Bay inland. Workers are swarming over a few palatial oceanfront homes built of cement. But next to them, wooden structures sit grotesquely askew and silent. Further down is Fort Myers Beach, but huge trucks are backed up, blocking access. Did you go up to Fort Myers Beach? To bring tissues. Because the worst part about going to Fort Myers Beach is you gotta, you got to turn around and come back, and it's heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. That's Trish Demonio out walking her dog, the only resident I see. I tell her I don't think people outside Florida know how bad it still is here. I'm stunned. So am I. <laughs> it's devastating. It's hard to... I live over here on the bay, and it's 360 degrees of destruction, but it's a lot better than it was. We were very fortunate. We're 15 feet above, and the surge was 14 and a half feet. So we lost everything downstairs, the boat, the car, the kitchen, but... Uh, Everything's fine above, we're, so we were very, very fortunate. What are you? What are you not able to forget? Any of it. It's. I go down to the beach and walk three miles every day, so I can look across the Gulf and not see all of this. I have to do it for my own sanity. It's heartbreaking. Yes. I'm sorry. No. Thank you. We're having a hard time talking. <laughs> I'm wondering: Are there people who are really damaged? There are people. We lost a friend. He, he died a month after, and I think if he hadn't seen all this, <clears throat> he would still be alive today. I truly believe that. And there are some people who are so traumatized, they won't even, they're, they're not, they're just not themselves. Well, what do you want to know about going forward? What do you want to know? Well, <laughs> I'm a tough one to talk to. I don't believe climate change is what caused this, um, but what is the science saying about the, the likelihood? This is a once-in-a-lifetime hurricane. I don't think I'm, I'll see another one in my lifetime, and I have to move forward and believe that, because it's no way to live otherwise. Well, science probably won't say what Trish wants to hear. Yes, she's right in that scientists say climate change may not have been the most important factor in creating Ian, but another Ian could happen, and soon, history tells us so. All right, guys, this is Robin Young. That's Australian-born Dr. Joe Muller. She's a paleoclimatologist, meaning she studies prehistoric climate, as we'll hear. She's with the Florida Gulf Coast University Water School. Boat captain Adam Katassis is ferrying Dr. Joe and a few students from FGCU's Vester Field Station into Estero Bay to get into that water and do some research. After the storm, we were told not to get in the water because of the bacteria. You're on our first coring trip. <laughs> coring, that's shimmying long aluminum tubes into the base floor to find sediment from Ian. That surge that rose 14 to 16 feet up the size of homes, well, it carried ocean material here into the bay, joining layers from past hurricanes that Dr. Joe will study the way archeologists study fossils. And if we take a long enough core, we can reconstruct the hurricane history for Southwest Florida. Back how far? Back how far? Um, thousands of years. And the bay has been um, cleaned up quite a bit. Last time I was out, just after the storm, there were lots of cars in the water and uh, houses. Oh my gosh, I'm, is that something I see in the trees? Yeah, there's, there's debris everywhere. You'll see dumpsters, you'll see parts of houses, you'll see fences, you'll see decks. It's, it's literally everywhere. Are we passing a... Yeah. Sorry. What is that? It looks like a street sign. Lots of what is that? 
It's an upside-down pontoon boat that sank. That sank, okay. I think everyone was really shocked. Um, a lot of us do research related to hurricanes, but I think when you actually have a storm like that make impact where you live, um, it's obviously got a completely different feel to it. Mm. We had a really active hurricane period between the late 1800s and 1950, so there were actually five storms that made landfall in this area that produced storm surge over 10 feet. And so I knew that these types of storms were possible. And then Ian came and I think a lot of folks down here, because because the population has increased so rapidly in the last 50 years or so, people just weren't expecting it. Um, there are very few people living down here that went through Hurricane Donna in 1960. But if you do talk to some of those folks, they'll tell you how traumatizing that storm was. So this trauma will last too, if they're speaking of trauma from 1960. Absolutely. Dr. Muller says hurricanes have a job, moving heat. In early 2022, there were few large storms in the Gulf, so that heat energy built up over the warm waters. Yes, they were made warmer by climate change. And Ian just scooped it all up. But she says the biggest factor, both in the 1800s and now, is this area's geomorphology, its topography, a continental shelf along the coast, like cement steps in a pool. When storm surges crash into those steps, they crash harder onto the shore. And unlike the 1800s, there are millions more people living on these shores, unaware this is a natural hurricane zone. Adam has idled the boat. Dr. Joe and her marine science students, Courtney Lauer, Abby Itzik, and graduate Tanisha Martin, ready the over 10-foot-long tubes. You tell me what we're doing. What's going on? All right, we're going to see if we can find Ian. <laughs> in the water, in the sediment. In the sediment. Um, I do see Hurricane Donna, um, so we're going to see whether now Ian is on top. That is so funny. But I that don't you know are, whether it will be. I know, but that you're <laughs> physically thinking you're about to see the hurricane, or at least its calling we'll card. See. We're going to see whether its geologic signature is in the sediment. You're going in the water? Yeah. And she goes. Oh, it is nice and fluffy. You mean under your feet? Yeah. This is a test run. She'll scoop sediment from the floor of the lagoon. Is Ian here? So I don't know if you can see it there, Robin. Do you Ooh, see the stinks. lighter color on the top? <laughs> it yeah. does stink. Um, but do you see that light gray layer on the top? That is Hurricane Ian's overwash. So that's all marine material that's come from the Gulf of Mexico and being washed over the barrier. Just as you said, we're looking at the hurricane. Yes. <laughs> all right. Can you have a look and see? Is it fine sediment? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it has not. Oh, my God. Is it in your teeth? Yeah. So, um, it's Tanisha. It, it's Tanisha. It's a quick test to determine how large the grains are. Kind of rub it between your teeth. Rub it between your teeth and kind of feel how, gra- how granular how, it is. How granular it is. Yeah, how gritty it is. It's what geologists it's often do gritty. when they're in the field <laughs> if they want to be quick and lazy, really. <laughs> um, so, girls, who wants to get in? Me. Okay. Tanisha, they wanna- leap. Circle the tube, grab handles, and begin a jackhammer motion to drive it down into the bay floor. Remember, it's up and down. Let's make sure it's really straight. Up first. Up, down, up, down. Oh, Okay, so up first. Oh, down. Wow. There's some muscle there. 
They'll do this for quite a while, measuring while they force the tube past the fluff of the lagoon matter, past Ian sediment, past Donna, past, past hurricanes. Then they'll hit bottom and try to maneuver the now very heavy tube without spilling it. Oh. All right, girls. Up a little bit. Okay, good. You can hold it there. Yep. yep. Like falling over because you're sinking. Yeah. yeah. Okay, sorry. Yeah. You got it, girls? Yep. yep. No, Biggie, right. you got it? You got it, Court? Yeah, we got it. Right. Okay, you can put that sucker down. Yeah. Well, and this is hard work. Yeah. <laughs> then they pull the pole, filled with years' worth of sediment, out of the suction they've created, cut off the top, and cap it. There we go. Go, go, go. Oh. <laughs> yeah. you were the winner. Party. I already love doing this. Yay, team. That, that'll do, girls. It's been a long, successful day. Dr. Joe Muller and her students will bring the coring tubes back to the lab to study Ian, a known storm, to learn about the prehistoric storms that came before. Being able to see a known storm on the top of the core allows us to understand the storms that have occurred further down core. So if they look similar, if they're a similar thickness and grain size. Um, Did Ian come before? Yeah, exactly. It's been a particular joy to watch these budding female marine scientists today. Later at Florida Gulf Coast University's Water School campus, I'll host a panel of distinguished professional women for the female STEM students. But the joy starts to dampen a little as we remember why we're here. Adam, as you pilot us here, you know what's pretty stunning to me is that we came out here looking into past hurricanes. I'm really feeling how present the most recent one was. This hasn't gone away. No, it's definitely not gone away. I was actually out um, on Full Mars Beach. It's hard. It's, uh, it's just sad. <laughs> there used to be rows of houses. And a lot of the areas, they're gone. There's nothing. It's just sand. I can see in your face that you can still be made newly sad. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's shrimp boats that used to be docked together. They're on land. But what do you do? And, yeah, I mean, under Fort Myers Beach, there's, there's a lot of people still living in tents. The biggest thing is to document all that happened. How, how did everything change? Courtney, what are you pointing at? Uh, there's a car in the trees. I see it now. There's a car. <laughs> in the trees. Our thanks to Dr. Joe Muller and everyone from FGCU's Water School. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now, from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Lynn Menegon, Karen Miller-Medson, and Peter O'Dowd. Our editors are Todd Munt, Julia Corcoran, Eileen Bolinsky, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagan. The executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 